All right, hey, what's up, Traders Point family? Good to see you today. Hey, I uh, want to welcome everybody gathered across all of our locations and online. So glad that you're here. And if you are joining us today, you came on a really good day because today we're kicking off a brand new series of messages in the book of First Peter. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and find First Peter chapter 1 uh, because that's where we're going to be today. And, uh, you know, one of uh, the highlights for me as a dad, one of my favorite things to do over the years has been anytime I've had like a, a work trip, uh, a trip that's requiring me just to, to travel, especially if it's um, maybe outside of our country, is uh, to be able to take one of my kids with me. And so when they uh, got about uh, right around the age of six years old or so, I was like, you know, it's a pretty good age where they're old enough to, you know, be somewhat uh, self-sufficient and I can pack enough things in a little backpack for them, you know, and, and they're going to go with me uh, wherever I may be traveling. And uh, so I just had the opportunity to take my son with me to South America one time. That was such a highlight. And uh, when my oldest daughter was 12, um, she went with me to Cape Town, South Africa a few years ago. And we were there visiting some missionary friends of ours. And uh, just, man, Cape Town is absolutely beautiful. And it is an extremely long plane ride. And so it was just so much fun to have my daughter there with me. And uh, while we were there one day, we were um, doing some uh, community work in one of the local slums around Cape Town. And uh, we did some service projects and door-to-door -door stuff and had a long, long day. And at the end of the day, we all gathered in um, the church that met in that community. And we were going to have a meal before we went back to the hotel. And so we're in there and we're, we're waiting and waiting and waiting for this food. And um, like and one hour goes by, two hours go by. Like we're just waiting and waiting. I don't know what the holdup is. And I can tell there's something wrong. And so finally, uh, somebody comes up to me and they, they kind of pulled me aside and they said, hey, we need to, we need to talk to you for a quick minute. Um, we had hired a um, woman in the community. We, we didn't know who she was. We just hired her out to prepare the food. But we have since learned that she is a practicing witch, right? I don't know how you find that out, but apparently that's what, what, what she was. And so uh, when she found out that there was a pastor in the group, uh, she, she was trying to poison your food, right? So, so... That doesn't happen every day, all right? It's like, uh, as, as a pastor, like I've had plenty of people upset with me, you know, for things that I've said and done, but nobody has ever tried to poison my potluck, all right? I mean, that, that's just never happened. And they said, hey, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. Like we hired out another lady in the community and she's making the food, it's almost ready. And I'm like, what's your background check process like? I mean, how do you, how do you know? Now, I mean, there were enough things in that culture that were disorienting to me, let alone having a witch try to poison my food, right? Now, I don't know if any of you have ever traveled outside of the country in which you grew up uh, into another culture, into another environment. Uh, but if you have, chances are you've experienced the feelings of disorientation and confusion that uh, really can be described as something called culture shock. Now, let me just give you one definition of culture shock. The feelings of surprise, disorientation, uncertainty, and confusion that are felt resulting in anxiety when people have to operate within a different culture. Now, I'm just kind of curious in this room and across all of our locations, if you've ever experienced culture shock, just raise up your hand just real quick. Yeah, a fair amount of the room has experienced it. And I would say that if you haven't experienced culture shock, you should sometime. Like, because it's very informative. I think it shows us what we lean on. It shows us what our, uh, our securities are. I think it's so um, informative to find yourself in an environment where the language that you natively speak like isn't spoken, that the food is different, the customs and the traditions, the fragrances that you're smelling, all that stuff is different because it, uh, it, it teaches you a lot about yourself. And maybe you have been in an environment where you've been experiencing some culture shock. And if so, then we find ourselves in really, really good company with the original recipients of the letter to fir of 1 Peter. And that's what 1 Peter is. It's uh, technically called an epistle in the New Testament. And all an epistle is, is just a letter. And it's a letter written by a guy named Peter to a group of scattered Christ followers that are located all over Asia Minor to let them know that the feelings of confusion and disorientation that they were experiencing were real. They had become foreigners in this world primarily due to their association and devotion to Jesus. And Rome had determined to rid the empire of the Christ ones. That's how they were referred. 
And these were the group of people that refused to bow down to Caesar, and Rome saw them as a threat. And so as a result, their entire worlds had been turned upside down. Now, one important rule of accurate Bible interpretation is that before you can discern the meaning and the application of a text to your life here today, you have to first understand what the application and the message was to the original audience first. So uh, just this little tip for you, if you ever find yourself in a Bible study and you read a passage and then the group leader says, well, let's just go around the room and you say what the passage means to you. Uh, big red flag, right? It's not that we can't get there eventually. That's just not the first stop. The first stop is uh, what was the meaning for the original audience first? And then we can discern the meaning for us today. So Peter is writing to this group of scattered Christ followers. And then obviously there's a message here, a timeless word of God that applies to our lives today. And I would say that for those of us today listening to this, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that there is likely some things in your life that you're walking through right now that feel a little disorienting and discouraging. Just stuff you don't really know how to respond to. Like challenge and crisis and anxiety and, and emotion. I mean, if I'm just being really, really honest, like I have to battle discouragement on a daily basis because there's so many things that can be discouraging. And I don't have the answers to a lot of things. And so I would venture to say that all of us um, have felt our entire worlds sort of flipped upside down over the events of the last two to three years. Would you not agree with that? And so we've all just kind of felt like we kind of feel like we're in many ways we're just sort of living like in a new world. Like everything just feels a little disorienting and it's not all bad, but it's not necessarily all good. And it's not just all challenge. There is some opportunity, but it just kind of feels like the weird sort of aftershocks of just all of the crisis and tension that we've been through over the last couple of years. And so God's word isn't just a book that tells us what happened a long time ago. It is a book that tells us what always happens and is a timeless word of God. And God has something fresh that I think he wants to speak to us in and through the book of First Peter. So we're going to spend several weeks walking through this together. And uh, if you're new to our church, let me just kind of tell you how we roll. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to start in chapter one. I'm going to read and explain and read and explain and read and explain. And then I'll apply and then we'll be done. All right, so it'll be, it'll be relatively painless. All right, so let's start in verse one. Uh, are you guys ready? All right, yeah. I was wondering, all right, I was wondering, but you proved me wrong. Here we go, verse one. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. All right, so we gotta stop right there because there's so much packed into that one sentence. All right, so uh, if you, now uh, writing a handwritten letter is sort of a lost art nowadays. Like, I, I'm a child of the 80s. Like, I remember, like, walking down the hallway between classes, and the girl that I like, you know, she would slip me a letter. Any of you remember that? Of course you don't. You weren't alive then, right? So, um, uh, but I just remember, like, oh, man, that was like, uh, uh, yeah. Now, uh, we don't write letters like that anymore. What do we get? We get text messages and DMs, right? Not entirely bad. Not entirely good, right? And if you ever received a text message from somebody whose number was not in your phone, you knew who they were, but you didn't have their number. And so they send you maybe some, like a paragraph text message, and you're reading it, and you're so lost because you don't know who it's from. And you're like, uh, so you respond back, and you're like, uh, misplaced your number. Who is this? And then they're like, oh, it's Rick. All of a sudden, oh, Rick, now the message makes sense. Because who is writing it, like understanding who they are, informs the meaning of the message. That is why when you read all these epistles and these New Testament letters, they will start off by saying who it is from. And so Peter says, hey, this is from me. Now, what do we know about Peter? Well, Peter and another guy named Paul write the bulk of the New Testament. And they have some similarities, but in many ways they're so different. Paul was like this well-educated you know, buttoned up, kind of prim and proper kind of a guy. Like when I envision Paul, I think vineyard vines and loafers, right? That's what I think. Peter, on the other hand, he's like this kind of like, you know, he dropped out of, you know, high school and, and he's just sort of like this guy's guy. And, uh, you know, he wears Crocs and Under Armour, 
You know, that, that's the kind of guy that Peter is. And, uh, you know, Paul can explain to you the depths of theological doctrine. Peter can tell you the difference between a crappie and a bass, all right? That's, that's who this guy is. And Peter's one of the very first followers of Jesus. One of the things you need to know is that Jesus had 12 disciples, but he had three that he loved to hang with. Peter, James, and John. Peter is maybe, like, uh, like one of the things that he has done, like that's so remarkable, is that Peter one time walked on water pretty astounding. Um, how many of you have ever done that? Didn't think so. All right, so, so Peter's done that. However, that's not what he's the most known for. Peter is the most known, unfortunately, for his, one of his biggest failures, is that when it mattered most, he denied that he ever knew Jesus after promising Jesus he would never do that. And you just imagine the amount of shame that he would have felt at that campfire that night outside of Jesus' illegal trial when he couldn't even admit that he knew him. And Peter's carrying that with him. And Peter knew what it felt like to be an insider and then overnight be an outsider. And now he is writing to a group of believers that are feeling those same things. And he says, uh, going on in verse 1, I am writing to God's chosen people, hang on to that, we'll come back to that, who are living as foreigners. There's the word. That's why we're calling this series what we're calling it. Um, another word for foreigners is exiles. And if that sounds familiar to you, I hope it does, because we just got done in our series in Daniel where we talked a lot about that. And then he just says, uh, they're scattered uh, all over the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all kind of around the Roman Empire outside of the city of Rome. So what I want to draw your attention to is that Peter uses two very descriptive and distinctive words to describe who they were. He says, you are chosen and you are foreigners. So these are believers that have been scattered all over the world due to religious and political persecution. And right now they were facing a brand new world in which their circumstances were uncertain and all of their support systems had been decimated. And so Paul's writing to say, hey, I want you to look at your circumstances through a certain lens. And that's why he brings up the word foreigners. Uh, Pastor J.D. Greer made these observations about this, which I, I really resonate with. He said, if you're living in a country you're not from, you can be one of three things to it. Uh, you can be an immigrant. And an immigrant is somebody who desires to make a country they are not a resident of their permanent home. And oftentimes, as Christ followers, we can do this with the temporary world in which we now live. Because of Jesus, we are citizens of heaven. And so this world, while we are here temporarily, is not our permanent home. But we can keep our eyes focused so much so on the circumstances of what's going on around here that we treat it like it is. So we become preoccupied with events in this world. We become preoccupied with uh, making a comfortable life here and making a name for ourselves here and enjoying ourselves here. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things unless they become the primary lens by which you view life. And so we become so focused on earth that we, we're not living really with any mindset towards heaven. Uh, the second way that we can view it is through a tourist. And a tourist is not there to take up residence in the new country, a tourist is just passing through. A tourist isn't going to unpack any, un, un, unpack any boxes. A tourist isn't going to set up any utilities. They're not going to make any connections or build relationships. A tourist is not going to bother to learn the language. A tourist is not going to learn to love the local food, but they're just going to go try to find the local McDonald's. Not concerned about the community's problems or politics. Why? Because we're going to catch a flight and we'll be out of here soon. And I've actually rubbed shoulders with a lot of Christians and that's their attitude towards this world. Hey man, we're not going to get involved here. Not going to build any relationships. Our hearts are not going to break for those outside of Christ. There's going to be no connection, no compassion. Um, I'm just waiting to get raptured off of this train wreck of a planet. Me and Kurt Cameron, baby, we're going to be raptured, right? And I love that a few of you got that. All right, so here's the third thing is we can view this world as an exile, as a foreigner. And this is what Peter is talking about. An exile is a person whose home is somewhere else, but for an unspecified amount of time, they have set up home in a new environment. This is Daniel and his friends working for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. 
So we're here right now. So we're going to invest in the community, form relationships, learn the culture as well as the language, grow to love the food. But we know full well this is not our final destination. There will be a day when we will go back home and we look forward to it with joy and anticipation. We are not overly focused or obsessed with amassing stuff here because we know we can't take it with us. It's kind of like um, whenever you're traveling and you go through an airport that you have a connection somewhere. And as you're walking through uh, the airport, you see all those like shops that pop up that have like uh, water and snacks and some minor necessities that are jacked up to ridiculous prices. Why do they do that? Because they know they, you're not going to get it anywhere else. They got you trapped. And so you, you go and you buy these handful of items to carry you on for the next flight. Do you know what you never see in airport shops? costco size shopping carts because nobody goes to the airport to stock their pantry, right? In a very similar way, we are like travelers sort of passing through where it's not that having material possessions is bad. We're just not trying to amass stuff because this is not our final destination. We have a different, we serve a different kingdom and we have a different set of lenses and values and priorities. And so because of that, you could think about it this way. We are living our lives to a different rhythm or soundtrack that the rest of the world can't, outside of Christ can't necessarily hear. And so, of course, you're going to seem a little strange. How many of you have ever had your AirPods in, walking the dog down the sidewalk, rocking out to Beastie Boys, and you're singing at the top of your lungs and nobody else can hear the tune? You look like a lunatic. Right? You're like walking out, what you, what you, what you want? Right? You know? And uh, some of you are surprised they even know that. All right? That's my best BC Boys impersonation. Uh, but man, you're going to seem a little strange because they can't hear the tune. And, and in the same way, as a Christ follower, it's this tension between not like totally blending in, but standing out in the best way, in the best way, because we're, our lives are set to the rhythm of the Word of God. So we see the world through a different set of lenses. Now I say different, please don't hear me say weird. We do not need any more weird Christians. We have enough of them. We don't need any mean-spirited, judgmental Christians. We have enough of them, but distinct, distinct. Because our, we're living our lives through a different set of lenses. This is what Peter's driving at. And all through this letter, he is urgent and intense. There are more than 30 imperative verbs in this letter. That is one command in every three verses. However, it is also filled with hope. And we need that now more than ever in this life, don't you think? And so if we are battling right now discouragement or disorientation over a whole host of things, this letter is so relevant for us because what Peter is going to do is he's going to draw our eyes up. He's going to say, hey, pick, pick up your eyes and look at, look at Jesus. And so verse, um, verse 2, he says, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. Man, what, that is such a great sentence. So uh, one of the things that we see here is that Peter is being really clear, but that doesn't mean that he's being simple. So in one short paragraph, he is cramming as much Christian doctrine into a paragraph as you could possibly cram. And before Peter can encourage us to look at our world and circumstances differently, what he needs to do is he needs to ground our identity in who God says that we are. Have you noticed that we live in a culture right now where everybody is desperately trying to identify themselves as something? We're trying to find our identity. Where do you think that came from? That came from their, your, our creator, that God has made that within us to search for so desperately an identity that is outside of ourselves. So instead of finding our identity in our sexuality or our gender or our talents and abilities or bank account, God says, you need to find your identity in who I say that you are and who Jesus died for you to be. And right out of the gates, Peter says this, God knows you. And I just want you to let that truth wash over you right now, that the God of the universe 
knows you. He created you intentionally, regardless of the details of your birth, like how you came into this world. God ordained you to be alive right now in this moment in history. That is a wild thought. Think about, like you are no accident. Think about all the moments in history when you and I could have been alive. We could have been alive during the Stone Ages. Aren't you thankful we're not? Like we could have been alive during the wild, wild west. We could have been alive during the Great, Great Depression or World War II. All of these like really trying moments in human history. But instead God said, no, I'm ordaining you to live during this period of time with all of the crisis and challenge that it entails for a reason. Not just to ride out the storm, but to be part of the answer or the solution to it. And so Peter uses just this incredible but controversial word, chosen. And before I kind of dive into the controversy around that word, let me just say this. Um, doesn't it feel good to be chosen? Man, it just feels so good. Like when you walk into a room where you don't expect anybody to know your name, doesn't it feel good when somebody walks up and they just call you by name? Like, doesn't it feel good when you get picked for the team, you get picked for the promotion, uh, uh, the person that you have a crush on asks you out on a date? There's just something about being chosen that what, and, and the reason why is because God put that in you. There's that thing that longs for you to be picked, for you to be seen, for you to be chosen. And Peter comes and says, man, God knows you and he has chosen you. And it's unfortunate that in many Christian circles throughout church history, we've managed to turn this incredible thing into a source of con uh, confusion, division, and heated tension. Here's what I mean. And some of you already know where I'm going. And you're leaning forward going, oh, goody. As a pastor, I oftentimes, at, before or after the service, will be standing in the lobby greeting people. And I'll have somebody walk up to me. Maybe it's a, a new person, uh, maybe visiting for the first time. And they'll come up and they'll ask me uh, a form of this question. They will say, um, hey, um, are you Calvinist or Arminian? Oh, goody. All right, that, that's where we're going to go. All right, or they'll say this, like, hey, what do you think about election? Or what do you think about predestination? Where do you stand on that? Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, here's, here's really what we can kind of boil the question down to. When it comes to salvation, here's what they're asking. Do I choose God or does God choose me? Now, I do think that like many complex issues, we set ourselves up for failure disappointment and further confusion by the way we ask the question. Right? Now hang with me in this. Oftentimes the way that we frame really challenging, difficult theological questions that are necessary and good, the way we phrase the question is not necessarily the way the Bible speaks to the question. So uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Do I have to be baptized to be saved? The Bible never phrases it that way. Um, uh, does God send people to hell? Will the Pacers ever be good again? Right? Like, just, just impossible questions. Like, we just can't answer them. All right? Uh, let me give you another example. Um, I, I, like, one of the, like, don't you have something about your body you just don't like? Don't you, like, or is it just me? Right? Um, all of us, like, probably when you look in the mirror, you see something you don't like that nobody else notices. And for me, it's my legs. I, don't look at them, all right? Just, <laughs> this is why I hide behind this thing, all right? Uh, you can ask my wife. Like, I've never liked them, all right? And, um, you know, and thankfully she does, all right? So, but anyway, um, but, but I, I, don't, I don't like them. And so if, if I were to say, if I were to walk up to you, and if I were to say, hey, do you like my legs? Weird question, right? If, and, and, and here's what's even weirder. If you say to me, yes, I do, I just set you up for failure because number one, I'm not going to believe you. Number two, I'm going to think it's really creepy. You're looking at my legs. <laughs> or if you um, say, uh, no, I don't like your legs. They're ugly. I'm going to be highly offended. We're no longer friends. <laughs> See what I'm saying? The way I, answer, the way I phrase the question sets us up for failure. And when it comes to the issue of election, predestination, all that really, really worthy discussion, we can have a discussion about the way that we phrase the question oftentimes sets us up for failure. So when it comes to the issue of election, some suggest that what it means to be chosen is that God chooses some to be saved and others to be lost. And I would say that that is not what the doctrine of election means. To be chosen means that God 
takes the initiative to move towards us. Right? God sent Jesus into this world to die for our sins long before any of us were here. So who chose first? All right? God initiated. Romans chapter six or Romans chapter five verse eight. Uh, let me say this: Does God uh, did, did God just do that for a select few? Well, uh, the Bible says, "For God so loved the world." Uh, last time I checked, the world included everybody. So He sent Jesus into the world, but He draws us to Him by His spirit and it is his spirit that awakens that desire within us Ephesians says that we were dead in sin and dead things don't respond so our whole the Holy Spirit causes us to respond to him John 6 44 I had is this confusing yeah is there a mystery to it yeah do I trust God in it yeah I had a professor who used to say it this way God is so sovereign that he has built and sovereign just means in control that he has built free will into his foreknowledge so foreknowledge and election are different. Just because God knows something is going to happen doesn't mean that he forces it to happen. In the words of Norman Geisler, we are chosen, yet we are free. I mean, just think about uh, the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told in Luke 15. And some of you know this parable. This young man goes to his father and essentially tells his father to drop dead. That wasn't the word he used, but that's what he meant. Because he said, give me my share of the inheritance and leave me alone. He's wishing that his father would die. And so he takes his share of the inheritance, leaves, goes off to a foreign country, squanders it all in wild living. And he has nothing left and he's feeding pigs slop as a part-time job. And he's so hungry that he wants to eat the slop that the pigs are eating. And he says, what am I doing? My father's hired hands live better than I do. So I'm just going to go back and I'm going to beg, grovel, and plea that my dad will just hire me as part-time help because I don't deserve to be his son again. And so the young man goes back home, but Jesus says the father was outside looking out on the horizon, waiting for his son. And when he saw his son, he ran to him. So here's the question. Uh, did the son choose the father or did the father choose the son? Yes. Right? That's the answer. And so does God choose me? Do we choose God? Yes. I, I don't know how it works, but I'm so thankful that it does. And for those of you that are, and you know who you are, you are this and you've already got the email ready, right? You're just you're ready to fire it off. Right? You, you, are, you are either this or that, black or white, right? Uh, the, you, so this like kind of like it, murky kind of confusion is very unsettling to you. But that's, uh, that, that's why we have an Arminian kind of camp and a Calvinistic approach because there are scriptures that speak to both and we take the Bible as a whole. Both are going on. Uh, uh, pastor and author Tim Keller says it this way, we will never find God unless he first seeks us. But we should remember that he can do so in very different ways. Sometimes God jumps on us dramatically and we have a sharp sense of his love. Sometimes he quietly and patiently argues with us even though we continue to turn away. How can you tell if he is working on you now? If you begin to sense your lostness and find yourself wanting to escape it, you should realize that that desire is not something you could have generated on your own. Such a process requires help. And if it is happening, it is a good indication that he is even now at your side. Uh, here's a way, um, oftentimes, same kind of deal. When I have somebody come up to me, a Christ follower, who says, I'm really, really worried that maybe I've lost my salvation. How do I know if I'm saved? I would say simply the fact that it bothers you shows me you're saved. Because conviction doesn't come from you. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. So God pursues us, and I'm so glad that he does, because without it, we don't stand a chance. This is such an encouragement when I'm discouraged. So he announces all that. He's, he's going to take great efforts to say, here's who you are. Here's who God is. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he's done for you. Now, verse 6 is a verse of application. So, some translations say therefore. So he's turning a corner. So because of what you just learned, be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead. Those of you doom and gloom, conspiracy people, conspiracy theory people, he says there is wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while. I just want you to notice all of the things that appear to be intention in these verses. Wonderful joy, endure the trials. Verse 7, these trials will show that your faith is 
genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Those two things are intention. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. That's attention. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. Um, the tension is where the transformation lies. And some of you have heard me use this illustration before, if you've been here for a while, just of the rubber band. Like when you look at a regular rubber band, um, when it's just dangling like this, it's not much, much use. What makes a rubber band useful is when you apply tension. And this is what we see all throughout the scripture is these things that are in tension. So grace and truth, God's justice and his mercy. And here, Peter just unpacked a lot of them. He said, uh, we're going to have gladness and joy, even though we have to endure many trials. That there is this wonderful joy that's set out before us but many trials. We don't yet see him, but we love him and we trust him. And I would say that all of this gets unpacked in these two little words. Right now, chances are you are looking at your life circumstances through the lens of either fear or faith. And actually, if we're being honest, both of those things are going on at the same time. And Peter goes on and he says in verse 13, so... Prepare your minds for, what's the word? That was pathetic. All right, all right. So anticlimactic, all right. Prepare your minds for what? Oh, action. There you are. There you are. He doesn't say prepare your minds for contemplation, which contemplation is not bad. Oftentimes that's where action comes from. But he goes, prepare your minds to take action. Meaning living your life for Christ is not something that is just a spectator sport. God wants you involved. And he says, exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. This whole prepare your minds for action thing, the literal Greek phrase is gird up the loins of your mind. Aren't you glad they changed it in the English? <laughs> Walking around, hey, gird up the loins of your mind. This is the idea of, uh, you're like, uh, because um, in the first century, they wore like these long garments. They would like pull up the garments so that way they could run. And this was the idea that he's giving to these Christ followers. He said, you're not just here to hunker down and weather the storm and be a spectator as to what God is doing. God has designed you out of knowing who you are and what Jesus did for you to run to run in, to be a, a, a person of action and self-control. Now, let me just finish out the passage. I'll make a couple of observations. Verse 17, and remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. That is a sentence of reward, not salvation. So there's the, there, the salvation is done on your behalf through Jesus, but there is this, uh, and I don't have time to get into it today, but there is this idea of reward in heaven. And he's like, God's going to judge you according to, to what you do, the faith that you practice. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. The sin nature we got from Adam and Eve. And it was... Not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. That's, that was evidence of your saving faith. Um, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all of your heart. That's a different soundtrack. Verse 23, for you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. So much packed into that. And one of the things I just want to point out is that Peter is simply saying, if you're just focused on the here and now, you're missing out 
on so much more. Here's what I mean. Use your imagination with me. Those of you that are in the room, it's going to be a little easier for you to do this. If I was holding an end of a string right now um, with my fingers and the string was attached all the way to this back corner, spread out across this whole massive room, and then maybe right here was a little ribbon. The ribbon represents our 80 to 90 years here on this earth. The string represents all of eternity. And Peter says, you need to live for the string, not for the ribbon. And some of us have gotten so preoccupied with the here and the now that we are failing to see through the lens of eternity. Let, let me uh, say it this way. As Christ followers, when you face discouragement and disorientation over maybe something that happens in your world or the world, we can choose to lens, uh, to look quite possibly through the lens of fear. And, and many of us do. And, and honestly, like I do all the time. Like that's probably one of my initial responses when um, I get bad news, when I hear of a hurricane that's coming, when I see the uh, economy tinkering on a recession when I get criticized, when a relationship falls apart, when I'm grieving the loss of somebody that I love, when I'm worried about what other crisis may be coming, it's, it's easy to get wrapped up in the here and now and to just see it through the lens of fear. Here's what fear does. Fear says, uh, I'm just gonna hunker down and I'm just gonna try to get through this and I'm gonna try to be a self-preservationist and, and, and I'm afraid. I'm just gonna try to weather the storm that I'm in and pray that I never have to experience another one. Or we can choose to look through the lens of faith. And, and fear and faith, like both, both of these things are in us at the same time. Remember the, the tension. But, but faith says, okay, I'm scared too. But I'm going to choose to be intentional about who I'm looking to. So it's not all up to me. And um, I don't have all the answers. But I'm not just going to hunker down and weather the storm. I'm going to march right through it. And I'm going to prepare my life for action and self-control. And I'm going to ask God, God, what is it? Because you've created me. You know me. These are the days that you've ordained for me to live. Meaning that there is something intentional you want me to contribute to this world. So God, what is it? And I'm going to choose to look through the lens of faith. Do you know that cattle and bison handle storms in very different ways. Um, a herd of cattle, when they sense a storm is coming, they instinctively turn and run away uh, and scatter. Now, here's the thing about uh, a storm, uh, and here's the thing about cows. Cows are not very fast, and storms will eventually catch you. And so these cows, poor cows, like they turn and they run and they scatter, thinking they're going to outrun the storm. And now, by the time the storm catches up to them, they're all alone, leaving them even more vulnerable. That's what fear does. We've even seen this over the last several years. A crisis comes, a storm comes, we instinctively turn, we run, we hunker down, we isolate. The storm eventually catches us, but now we're all alone. If Satan wants to defeat you, he'll just get you alone. Bison handle storms very differently. I don't know if you know this or not, but when bison sense that a storm is coming, they huddle together because there's safety in numbers. They instinctively know this. The front of their bodies, this is why they, they look so hefty on the front. Their fur on the front is thicker than the fur on the back, which means that um, you know, they, they'll be able to be more insulated from the elements. And here's what I love about this. They square off and face the storm and they start marching towards it. And I love that. And the reason why they do it is because they know the storm is moving this way. And if they're moving this way, they know they got to go through the storm either way. They're just going to spend the minimum amount of time going through it. So if you're running the same direction as the storm, you're just going to be in the storm a lot longer. But they're going to march straight through. Now, I say all that to simply say this. As a church, are we, yeah, here's the deal. Storms are inevitable. Like ju there's just going to be more on the horizon. And so are we going to turn, run, and scatter? Or are we going to be a little bit more like bison, rally together as the body of Christ, a church family, a community of faith, 
and square off with the storm and march our way straight through it, saying God has ordained us to live during this time in this place. So God, how do you want to use us to make a difference in this world for all of eternity? Now, um, a few weeks ago in our all staff meeting, um, I shared this with our staff and um, I just kind of stood up and I said, you know, and I don't know if any of you can relate to me in this, but um, I just want to share from my heart right now. Um, I, I stood up and said, you know, right now we're living in like these kind of weird days, you know, it's just kind of like these like sort of aftershocks of the pandemic and the crisis and all this kind of stuff where we can, we know our world has changed and now we're trying to feel our way through to try to figure out what has changed and how we orient ourselves to this changed world. And there's a lot that stimulates fear and there's a lot that leads us to faith. And those two things are intricately linked together. So uh, I shared with our staff, I'm in, I don't know if any of you can relate to me. Anytime somebody comes up to me and they go, hey, Aaron, how's it going? I stumble and fumble for a response. Is any of you with me in that? Here, here's what's going through my mind. When somebody asks me that question, uh, a bunch of things race through my head. Um, the good and the bad. The challenges and the opportunities that those challenges have brought. Um, the blessings and the curses. And so right in that moment, I get sort of paralyzed. Like I don't really know how to respond. Like if I say, man, things are great. I don't feel like I'm entirely being honest. And if I say, well, things are really hard, then I feel, then I feel like a Debbie Downer, right? And so I don't really, like in that moment, I'm like, ah, like I don't know. Is any of you relate to me in that? A few of you. All right, so thanks. Now I'm really insecure. Stop looking at my legs, right? Um, so, 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 um, Right now, I think we all live in like these really, really disorienting times. And I've shared with you guys before in the past, like just, you know, my experience with 2020 and all that kind of thing. I don't have to rehash all that. But um, as your pastor, we've emerged kind of into this new world where I'm still, I feel like I'm leading in the dark. And it's like, it used to be that I kind of could see out a ways and kind of, you know, where, where we're headed as a church and Right now, like I'm trying to figure out like what vision, vision to cast. And, and, and so I'm, I feel like I'm kind of doing this. And honestly, I, I'm glad because I'm really more reliant upon God than I've ever been. Because I'm like, God, I can't come up with the vision for us. Like, I'm just, can you just show me the next thing? And, um, and honestly, like I'm in kind of this season right now where as I look at our church, like, I'm so grateful for you. Like, some of you I know are brand new to our church. Like, um, uh, next month uh, will be my 15th year. And I've just been thinking about, like, the 15 years that I've been here. Like, I was a 31-year-old, untested punk of a kid. And you guys took a chance on me. And in many ways, I feel like I've grown up here. And um, now I'm like a 46-year-old punk of a middle-aged man and I'm like and and uh and uh I I don't even know that I can convey like how deeply I love this church like it's um you know uh Lindsay and I's first full-time ministry was in southern Illinois and we felt called by God there but immediately we looked at each other and we said we feel called by God now but not forever and then we went out to California, we planted a church, and we go, we feel that God called us to do this, but we're not here forever. When we came to Indiana 15 years ago, we were like, we feel God's called us here. We think this is forever. And it's like, I'm, um, I, I'm 46. Uh, I'm thinking 20 years out. And uh, I'm not declaring I'll be your pastor for that amount of time because it's really not up to me, but I want to be. And uh, I recently said to our elders, I'm like, hey, the next 20 years, like, um, four five-year increments. And so what do the next five years look like and the next five years, the next? And I can't even think out that far. I don't know what kind of world we'll be living in. I feel like I'm leading in the dark. But here's the thing. Um, I refuse to think that our best days are behind us. And in fact, right now, right now, my prayer, and I want you to join me in this, is because, um, and I'm, I'm being somewhat confessional to you, because uh, even like this last week, I was in Orlando on Monday. I got out right before the hurricane hit, but I was with a group of pastors and they came up to me and they're like, hey, 
Uh, how's it going at church? That's like the question every pastor is asking each other. And once again, I was like, ah, it's good. It's bad. It's challenging. It's exciting. And uh, there's still a part of me that's just honestly kind of grieving what we lost. You know, it's like um, 30% of our church left. Now, a whole bunch of new people came, and I'm so grateful for them. But, um, uh, and when I say 30% of our church left, many of those people, those were people that I baptized. Those were people that I married. Those were people I did funerals for their loved ones. Those are people that I thought would be here forever, and, and they're gone. And I'm grieving that. Now, it's not all bad. Like, they, many of them have landed in other great churches, but I think what's painful is that they left, you know, because they got mad, you know. We stayed closed longer than they wanted, or we opened too soon. Or, you know, we asked you to wear a mask, or we didn't tell you to wear a mask long enough, or whatever. And I think there's a pastor. I'm just grieving that. And I told our staff this a couple weeks ago. I said, I'm tired of grieving COVID. I'm tired of looking at it through the lens of fear. And I choose to look at it through the lens of faith to say, okay, God, this is a brand new day. And here's what God's doing in me. Uh, here's, what I, here, here's, here's a couple ways you can look at this. Right now, 2022, hurricanes, recessions, the political vote coming up, you know, sorry to remind you. <laughs> All that stuff coming up. We can look at it through the lens of fear and go, oh no, these are horrible times to live. Like our world is falling apart. Or you can look at it through the lens of faith and go, oh yes, this is the greatest time to be alive as a Christian in the history of the world. Now, here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean. If you are a spectator Christian and it's all about what you get, you're probably not that excited. If you are a take action kind of a Christian, grow up the loins of your mind, let's go, let's take action, you should be very excited. Here's why. Did you know that there are more people living in the world today who do not know Jesus in the history of the entire world. So uh, there are roughly 8 billion people that live in the world today. And 50 years ago, there were roughly 3.8 billion. Think about that. All of history, the last 50 years, the world's population has doubled. Uh, the number of Christians has stayed flat. There are roughly 2.4 billion Christians. There are over 5 billion non-Christians in the world. Now, once again, you can look at it through the lens of fear. Like, oh, man, we're being outnumbered, and it's a, it's a non-Christian culture. Or you can look at it through the lens of faith and go, man, there are so many people, more people than ever, who need to know Jesus. What does every fisherman want in a fishing hole? A fully stocked pond. And God has given that to us. And so the idea now is, are we going to be on mission? So I just want you to know that when it comes to the events of 2020 and after, uh, it took a lot of us by surprise, knocked our worlds upside down, disoriented us. It did not take God by surprise at all. Uh, March of 2020, God was not, you know, sitting up in heaven with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, watching CNN or Fox News, <laughs> depending upon your persuasion. And... Uh, and God wasn't like, what? A brand new virus? We've never seen this before. What are we going to do? The world is falling apart. Jesus, you better get your bags packed. You've got you know, you to go back and get Kirk Cameron. Right? That's, that's not what he was trying He wasn't like all freaked out. God knew. God's been through this before. And he uses world crisis. Peter says trials to reset, to prune, and to get his people ready for action. So here's what I mean. Uh, in 33 AD, Rome crucified Jesus on a cross. 300 years later, in 313, Constantine declares Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. What in the world happened in 300 years that would cause the same empire to crucify Jesus and 300 years later to declare that the official religion of Rome? Well, a bunch of things took place in those 300 years, but here was two of them, two pandemics, the Antonine and the Cyprian. The first one lasted roughly 15 years. Imagine that. Um, aren't you glad you lived through this one? And then the second one lasted about 12 years and they wiped out much of the Roman empire um, and um, they made COVID look like it was nothing. God uses trials, crisis, world events to prune his people, to prepare their minds for action. I've got to believe 
that God has been rearranging the furniture over the last couple of years for us to make a big impact. So I say all that to simply say, say this. Would you join me as your imperfect, sinful pastor to square off against the storms that are coming and let's walk straight through and watch how God might use our church to impact thousands of lives for all eternity in the next 20 years. What I mean by that is, um, could I just urge you wherever you're at right now, spiritually and emotionally, just to take a step. So if you have just been spectating, take a step towards getting involved. If you've just gotten out of rhythm and you've just been, it's just been easy to watch from home. And I'm not saying that if everybody watching from home is necessarily always bad, but if you could join us physically and you could get involved in the lives of others, but you haven't because it's just been easy, take a step and re-engage physically. Let's not be detached. Let's be all in. Let's be at the ready and ready for action because I gotta believe that God has set us up to make a big impact and let's not squander the crisis we've been through over the last couple of years. Let's make a huge impact together as foreigners in this world with our eyes fixed on heaven. Father, I love these people. It's the honor of my life to serve here. And so I just ask that today your Holy Spirit would be at work and you would encourage us and that you would rally us together to live our lives through the lens of faith when everything within us wants to live it through the lens of fear. Pull our eyes up, keep us fixed upon you. And God, here we are. Would you use our church as a city on a hill, a light in a dark world to impact as many people as possible because this world is not our home. So we ask this in Jesus' name and everybody said,